0: I'm your host, Dr. Ned Hoke, a veteran in natural methods healthcare, speaking with you today from Sonoma Valley, California, for an hour of health topic digestion and discussion. Please stay with us. And welcome back to Health Matters Radio. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Eric Sala. Dr. Sala, who's written a wonderful new book called The Nature of Nature. And what brings us together with Dr. Sala is the well, what is so lively in the in the minds of many of our listeners and, and people ac- across the United States, of course, is the Trump's, Trump administration's recent claim that they're um, anxious to begin leasing uh, the uh, oil oil uh, the, for oil purposes the Anwar the Arctic ref- refuge that uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Began in the in the early 50s, and Jimmy Carter enlarged somewhat later, and now uh, Doctor uh, that is Doctor uh, Doctor uh, uh, President Trump wants to give it to the oil and gas people. So, Doctor Sella, maybe if you could start with that story in terms of where where you think it is and how significant do you think Trump's claim is that he's he's going to be able to actually. Uh, let these leases happen and that dr- drilling will actually begin. T- tell us the beginning, and also give us a little sense of what your contact with the with the Arctic Refuge is as well.
1: Yes, I, I'm not uh, an expert in uh, Alaska or no. the National Wildlife Refuge, but I work in the Arctic in, in Canada and in Greenland. And from what I have read and heard, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense because the world is a wash in oil. Oil is quite cheap right now. There is no issue whatsoever with energy independence, like President Trump likes to say. This is just a freebie to to oil companies. But also, oil companies, I don't think they want to invest right now in the Arctic. It's too too expensive. It's not it's not worth to get that oil. And on top of that, the big banks, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and others have committed not to fund new exploration projects in the Arctic. So it does not make sense from an economical perspective. It does not make sense from a rational perspective, and of course, it does not. It doesn't make sense from a, an ecological perspective because the the goal of the refuge is to protect the nature there, especially the porcupine uh, caribou herd, which is key for the winnich tribes who live there. So on top of the ecological damage, we would ha- this would be desecrating traditional lands and livelihoods of indigenous tribes.
0: Mm-hmm. And going on with the, uh, the rest of my question, which is, I mean, you're not a, a, a sage, perhaps, and perhaps you can't have a crystal ball, but wh- what it, how likely do you think it is that the the refuge will actually be... Uh, well, of course, we're all hoping that Mr. Mr. Trump is... Uh, history by the time these leases may be uh, put out, but how likely do you think it is, or do you have any sense of that, of how likely it is that this actually will come to pass?
1: Well, if I had a crystal ball, I wish, uh, (laughs) uh, I hope the crystal ball would tell me that because of all these conditions, it's not going to happen. And also the uh, environmental organizations are going to have lawsuits um, ready. So I think that right now, especially in this this covid era where there are more important things to worry about than getting new oil fields. Right. I think that the likelihood of this happening is low.
0: Mhm. Well, I'm happy to hear you say that because there you're in Washington DC and you are and will be will be able to talk about uh, your contact with National Geographic that 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 will be an, an item of considerable interest to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Because you've done such a lot of interesting work with National Geographic. Uh, but I, I want to mention for our listeners who care about this topic, and I think many of our listeners do, there is the Oliver Millman article in The Guardian uh, last Friday. If they're interested in kind of a, a current, I don't know if you saw that that article, but uh, uh, George Millman in The Guardian last Friday, the 21st, had quite a nice, not a long article, but a, a nice. Uh, an article with some good feeling to it and a good sense of what the what the story was. So for our listeners who are interested, they may go there to the Guardian, I guess, uh, online, I'm sure. So um, okay, so that kind of takes us through a little bit of the the Arctic refuge, and of course, that's, as I say, quite important to many of our listeners. Um, let's come around to uh, the work that you have been have been doing with National Geographic for quite some time. You have a Uh, You're the director. Let's see. You are the director of a. I've got it here somewhere. Of a pristine ocean, pristine seas. Pristine seas. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could give us a a little synopsis of what that, what your duties are in that way, and and give us a taste of what that means.
1: Yeah, I used to be uh, Californian. I used to be head professor at the University of California in San Diego at the Scripps. Institution of Oceanography, studying the impacts of humans in the ocean, the impacts of fishing, global warming. But one day I realized that all I was doing was writing the obituary (laughs) of the ocean.
0: (laughs) Right.
1: I I felt like the doctor who's telling you how you're going to die, but not offering a cure. So I decided to quit academia and work full time on conservation. So I, I went to Catalonia in Spain, where I'm from, for a year to think. And I came up with this idea. Why don't we go to the last wild places in the ocean, places that are remote and still unfished, that look near Christine, and try to save them before it's too late? So I went to National Geographic and proposed the idea to combine what National Geographic is famous for, exploration, research, and media, to inspire the leaders of those countries to protect these areas in large marine reserves, in large national parks in the ocean, and in their infinite wisdom, they love the idea. <laughs> Wonderful. I moved to Washington in uh, July 2008, and in the last 12 years, we've been going to places around the world, and we've seen the creation of 22 of uh, the largest marine reserves that we have now.
0: Mm-hmm. And these are not only from U.S. sites, or are these largely U.S. sites.
1: No, there's only one site in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, the president. George W. Bush created and President Obama expanded. The Mm -hmm. other 21 are in different countries around the world, from Gabon in West Africa, Russia to the Seychelles, Chile, Argentina.
0: Give give us a feeling a little bit about, now you're, many of the sort of ecologists and the conservationists that we know are, they are, of course, many of them are academics, uh, let, but you've been in the practical poly, politics of this area. So if you could give us a little sense of how you actually pull these things together. I mean, what, what does it take to get you to and to get your research in front of the people that need to see it that will then consider it important enough possibly to even be, to begin to consider the idea of having these refuge areas? So tell us a little bit about that, how, how you sort of negotiate the, uh, you know, who who do you reach out to, who, who do you, who are your, your partners in terms of, do you have, like for instance, or does USAID somehow get involved or are any parts of the United States government involved, or is this, this other intergovernmental uh, uh, different groups, or, or this is, this, this can't just be a one man show. So tell us a little bit about how you pull this sort of stuff together and kind of what kind of people you bring together to make it happen.
1: Uh, this is definitely not a one-man show. We have a fantastic team. Uh, the pristine pres- pres- team is 25 people. Okay. Scientists, explorers, storytellers, filmmakers, uh, communications and policy experts. And we work directly with governments. We don't go through the U.S. government for this. Uh, governments have their sovereignty over their 200-mile uh, exclusive economic zone, right. marine waters. Right. So we work with communities in these areas. And in and inhabited places, we worked directly with, uh, with the country leaders. So you know, when I was in academia, I thought very naively that having data and having published papers <laughs> right. was all that was needed, right? For right. politicians, will will read the papers, and they will have all the information to make rational decisions. But, of course, that was a very naive assumption while I was much younger. <laughs> and with National Geographic, we actually uh, flipped the way we work. So first, we make those leaders, presidents, prime ministers, ministers of the environment, we make these people fall in love with these places. We take them on our expedition. Sometimes they come to visit for a day. We have dived with presidents, been in submarines with them, let them pilot an underwater robot. And invariably, if they come to the field and see these wonderful places, they fall in love with them. Mm. If they cannot come, then we bring these places to them with our documentary films. And once they fall in love with these places, once they understand deeply that these places are unique and irreplaceable and precious and that they need to be protected, then we come with the scientific data that we collect in these places to show them how special they are and why they need to be protected, plus the economic data, our analysis that shows why protection would be economically more beneficial than overexploitation. So first the head, sorry, first the heart, right, and then the head. That's mm-hmm. the way we get to them.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you almost sound like uh, John Muir and and Teddy Roosevelt and and Jacques Cousteau and these kinds of people. This is this this is this path is quite a. We've we've heard of it before, shall we say, that that business of bringing the politicians to the red, red redwoods or bringing the politicians to wherever they need to be brought to to show them exactly as you just say, that, that this is of course, and of course this is what we try to do with our citizens. I mean, we part of what we try to, what we have the national parks. I mean, I have to believe that part of what the national parks are about is, I mean, in terms of here in the United States anyway, part of what they're about is to be a, a largesse, if you will, of giving people the opportunity to experience firsthand the, the wonders of nature. And uh, so, uh, this is a you're you're at the professional end of that, but it, it's 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 quite a big process, and of course we have to thank I guess we have to thank Teddy Roosevelt in, in terms of the United States for being one of the people that really got sparked and alive with with the idea of, of conservation. So, speaking of conservation, in terms of uh, what else the National Geographic does? Of course, you've got twenty-five people, so that you've got a quite a substantial organization in terms of what you yourself are doing in terms of the pristine seas work. So, you've you've put out some films that are that then go with the different projects. So, do the public have access to these films?
1: Yes, we've had uh, we produced twenty-eight films, and fourteen of them are on, have been on National Geographic Channel or National Geographic Wild. Okay. Uh, in mm-hmm. September, we are going to air on the National Jurassic Channel a one-hour special on pristine seas. Mm-hmm. It's basically a retrospective of over a decade of work.
0: Wonderful.
1: In October, we'll have also another film, a uh, feature documentary that we produce on the Canadian and the Greenland Arctic mm-hmm. called The Last Ice, which is about how local groups, how Inuit communities are adapting to the loss of Ice and uh, impacts on the animals that they they depend on. So yes, um, if uh, people go to our pristine uh, website, or you know, just type National Geographic pristine seas, uh, they will be able to access uh, a website with all the places we've been to, with links to the to the films.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the links of the films; these are you have to buy access, or this is publicly available without charge.
1: Some are available on Disney Plus, so you need a subscription. Others are on YouTube, so it's it's a variety.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, you you've done so many different things in terms of this kind of work. So I guess your latest is coming out very soon. We, you're the Nature of Nature book, and so we'll be uh, taking a couple of minutes here now to just let's let's break let's open the the ch- the uh, front cover of the book a little bit. And like I said, I didn't get a chance so. Here's where I'm really dropping it in your lap. Tell us what the nature of nature is, and you know, give us, sell us the book. Basically, is what I'm asking you to do.
1: Well, first of all, uh, I hope that people will buy the book and get a, an actual hard copy because the cover is so beautiful. That I had nothing to do with the cover. Uh, no. Our creative director at National Traffic Books did it. It's a really beautiful cover with animal and plant uh, motifs. That uh, it's. I think it's a great first. Uh, introduction to the book, but The Nature of Nature is my love letter to the planet. Mm. It's my story of why we need the wild. Uh, For the last 30 years, I've been conducting research on how species interact with each other, how they self-assemble to create these wonderful ecosystems that we call forests, wetlands, grasslands, kelp forests, coral reefs, uh, you name it, and why we need all these species there so that they can provide all these benefits to us, all these things that we absolutely need to survive, like oxygen, fresh uh, clean water, food, pollination, uh, f- protection from floods and storms, etc., etc. That things that we cannot recreate th- despite all of our all of our technology. And I also wanted to make the economic case that protection of nature results in a greater economic benefit. Than the business as usual. Mm-hmm. That was what the book was about. Mm-hmm. But then COVID-19 happened, mm-hmm. and I called, I called my editor and I asked her if we could uh, stop the book from going to the printer. And she said, "You have two weeks." So I was able to write an <laughs> epilogue. <laughs> I was able to write an epilogue on the nature of coronavirus, ah. where basically I make I make the link between our broken relationship with nature and this pandemic, because the ultimate cause of the pandemic is wildlife trade and destruction of natural habitats where these animals live. So uh, full circle. How nature works, why we need intact ecosystems so they can continue making this planet a wonderful place to live, why we need to protect it, why it, it makes economic sense, and why our own survival and our own health depends on the health of the natural world.
0: And I think we have to acknowledge and increasingly this is apparent to more and more people who are recognizing exactly as you say that we are completely dependent on uh, an intact nature. So we're speaking to Dr. Eric Sala. His new, we're talking about his new book called The Nature of Nature. We do need to take a break. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Please stay tuned. And welcome back to Health Matters. Dr. Ned Hoke today joined by Dr. Eric Sala. He's the uh, the director of National Geographic Pristine Seas Project, he's written a new book called *The Nature of Nature*, and we're—he's just—we've just had a sort of a synopsis of the book just before our break, and so now, uh, Dr. Sella, what I hope we could do is you've—you've uh, you've given us the sort of general lay of the land. Maybe you could pick some pieces of your book, some some sort of morsels, if you will, and and dive a little deeper into a particular part. Of the of the story you're telling, and so you could, re, our listeners could get a feeling for what the a more granular sense of what you're ta- you they're going to be finding in your book.
1: Okay, so uh, in the book, I wanted to tell stories. You know, I spent too many years writing scientific papers with jargon, and
0: <laughs> <laughs> that
1: only only the um, initiated can understand. And that's I don't think that, that's that's uh, necessary everywhere. So. I wanted to tell stories of how uh, people, how colleagues and myself discovered um, how uh, basic eco- principles in ecology, how species interact with each other. But also I wanted to explain how the entire world is connected. And I have one example. The Amazon forest. We all see this horrible... News on TV that uh, the current government in Brazil is enhancing more deforestation in the Amazon. We have these horrible wildfires, and the amount of intact forest is dec- decreasing. Well, the Amazon is such a rich forest because it receives so much rain. Right? It's it's a very uh, classic tropical place. And the cool thing about this is that the forest produces its own rain. The forest, the trees absorb water through the roots, and thanks to the tropical heat, that water is transported all the way up to the leaves, and there it transpires like our sweat. It evaporates.
0: Wow. And
1: as this water vapor elevates, uh, then it condenses as rain. That lowers atmospheric pressure, which in turn draws more moisture from the Atlantic Ocean, which creates more rain, and so on and so forth. That rain, then, is going to erode the mountains of the Andes and transporting nutrients through the Amazon River to the Atlantic Ocean, where it's going to fertilize the waters, foster the growth of plankton, which in turn is going to feed the fish that people on the coast are going to catch. Right Now, the problem is that if we lose more than 20% of the Amazonian forest today, the forest that will not have the critical mass to produce enough rain, and the forest will turn into a savanna, a much drier environment. And that means that the weather patterns of the entire world will be affected. That's wow. one of the stories that um, I explain in the book.
0: Wow! Well, that I don't think I'd ever heard it ever spoken of so simply, and also so interconnectedly. That is the the Himalayas, the you know the the feeding of the moisture that then comes down the rivers of the Himalayas. I mean, we we sort of have heard the stories, but that sort of puts it in a very very stark uh, way. And, and of course, it, it doesn't take much imagination, assuming what you're saying is true. Uh, to it doesn't take much imagination to see how the uh, a break in the chain of that positive ecology is um, is life threatening for the for the for the planet. So keep keep going. Tell us a little bit more. That's one piece. Another, give us another morsel from your book and again but again sort of the deep the deeper dive so we can really see and feel the the story that you're telling because it just like you just did you in a very synoptic way you sort of you gave us such important points uh and yet they're powerful ones that that then make alive for us the the living nature of things
1: well, man, I hope that people will buy the book so um, and, and read the story themselves. Oh, of <laughs> but, course, of course. No,
0: no, I don't want to... Don't want... No, let,
1: let, let me let me tell you another one. So, okay, all right. Yeah, okay. I, I think what, what, one that is very relevant is, is the pandemic, right? Because right. today the, the priorities are to take care of people who are in need, right. people who are sick, who lost loved ones, who are in economic distress. Right. But also, it is the time to think about what caused the pandemic, and how we can prevent the next one. Right. And we all hear the news on TV, and it's all about the response. It's about, do we have enough tests? Do we do contact tracing? Should we get into lockdown? Should we use masks? But let's go back. Why did this happen? This happened because a virus spilled over from a, from a wild animal to a human in China. Right. Creating a local outbreak. And thanks to our globalized lifestyle, it spread like wildfire across the world, right? So that means that we are all in this together. We are all connected, not only to each other as humans, but also to all other creatures in uh, on on our planet. And you know, people before have thought that well, climate change is something that will happen in the future to somebody else. You know, the loss of biodiversity, this is something that happens in in the Amazon. It's not affecting me. Uh, pandemics, oh, this is Ebola in Cameroon or Congo. This is not affecting me in Minnesota or California, right? right. But now everybody is affected. California, unfortunately, is, is going through this uh, horrible wildfires. But the, the virus is something that uh, in our recent history is something that is probably the best wake up call we have. Mm-hmm. About what we are doing, it is our encroaching upon nat- uh, our encroaching upon natural habitats and getting uh, closer to these animals and transporting animals around the world like commodities, so they can eat them or use them as medicine. Right. This is the cause of this pandemic and before the cause of HIV, Ebola, Margo virus, SARS. Uh, this is this is not new. Only this one is is much worse. So there is a solution here. We can ban wildlife trade, especially illegal wildlife trade, and we can protect at least 30% of our planet by 2030. This would reduce the the likelihood that these viruses would come on our doorstep. Mm. And the cost of this is a small fraction of the cost of having to respond to the pandemic. We're talking about trillions of dollars in economic loss, right? It would cost uh, only $140 billion to protect a third of the planet in national parks and other protected areas, which in turn will produce many, many other benefits. And $140 billion per year, that may seem like a lot of money, but the world spends more money in video games today.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as you look out at the, the gut, well, of course... The shocking and insufficient governmental response of the of the federal government of the United States, of course, is is, is quite daunting. Uh, as you look out at the governments of the world, let's say, since you do kind of have a world view, how do you how, how do you assess and how do you imagine looking ahead? They're going to if you if you were to look say in two years from now, you're looking back. What, what do you imagine will take place in terms of what you know what does your crystal <laughs> I'm, back, I'm back to your crystal ball uh, but the, but what, what do you imagine the governments of the world are going to do with this situation and and what 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 would be your advice be Grace, as, as specifically as you choose as can be is what what should we be doing that we're not doing and what what should we imagine and expect our governments to do whether they or do whether they do it or not of course we can't know
1: I think I would be better prepared to answer the question after the U.S. election, but.
0: All <laughs> <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank but, you. Yes.
1: You know, but but you know, it, there are countries that have realized that we cannot go back to normal because this pandemic has shown that our global economic system is like the emperor without clothes, right? It's right. Based on very shaky foundations, it has unveiled all the uh, racial injustice and social inequalities, but also the unsustainability of the global economic system. Because we've been building for unfettered growth. We've been building for growth based on on hyper-leverage, not on resilience. Um, So um, what uh, governments will do will depend on who's in charge. Mm -hmm. And in the European Union, for example, the European Commission has a wonderful biodiversity strategy and a green deal. Mm-hmm. where they are planning to go carbon neutral by 2050. And we have plan to create hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of new jobs, which are going to be better paid. And instead of propping out the industries of the past, like fossil fuels, they are going to invest in the industries of the future, which not only are going to create new jobs, but they are going to produce cleaner air, cleaner water, and also the European Commission also is... is um, investing in 30% of Europe protected by, by 2030. And so is Canada, by the way. So there are governments that are leading the way. And depending on what happens on the on the U.S. election, either we'll go to a world with um, better, a, a much better environment or to a world of um, diminishing returns.
0: Right, exactly. Well, uh, thank you for that synopsis there, uh, Dr. Eric Sala, I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to read your book yet, and it doesn't look like it'll be a while till I get it. When exactly is it coming out? August 25th. Ah, okay. It's out already. Yeah, it's out already. And is there, if our listeners go online, can they get a, can they get, can they sneak a peek at the chapter at all, or is there any way they can get a little taste of it online?
1: There is no I don't think there is an uh, any excerpt on There is one excerpt on the September issue of the National Geographic magazine. Okay. That they can get online which is uh, it's an excerpt of the chapter on the, the nature of coronavirus.
0: Oh, wonderful. Oh, good. Well, that's perfect. We just talked about it. So that and that's purely your authorship or is it a mixed a mixed uh, mixed author account?
1: It's uh, just yours truly. <laughs>
0: okay. Well, Dr. Eric Sala, what a pleasure to have you, and I'm so grateful you took the time for us today, and we'll hope that you the, the book sells well and that your ch- ch- work continues to be as successful as it's been. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Good day to you, sir.
1: Thank you so much, Ed.
0: Thank B- you. Bye-bye.